much, much love to you all. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Wally. Uh, if I haven't met you, or if I have, but um, I'm teaching pastor here. Thrilled to be with you all. Uh, thrilled that we can gather together like this uh, and uh, spend some time together. But I thought uh, Jess said it well, too. We just do not get the time together in, in a gathering the way that I certainly would want us to. Things like New Wine Wednesday, for sure, even um, leftover Thanksgiving in which we share food and leftover uh, overflow Thanksgiving we have in our lives, that's the idea. Um, but spending more time together uh, is a gift. It's needed, and to be able to have conversations, I know for myself, every Sunday I always leave and I have running through my head, oh, I didn't get to talk to, and I didn't get to talk to, and I didn't get to talk to. Um, never saying I didn't get to talk, by the way. <laughs> but I didn't get to have connections with, in, in more of that one-on-one -on -one setting for the, the time that I would want. Um, so those gatherings uh, are so important in that we can do this together. Um, is really, really meaningful. And uh, we are going to talk more and more on our Sundays, though, too. What you'll hear is the language of why. Why do we do the things we do? Uh, we want to start highlighting that because if you grew up in church or if you've been in church a lot and then you experience Walker Harbor, um, maybe in some ways you're like, yeah, it's very similar to maybe what you've experienced before. And maybe there are ways in which you're like, ooh, that's really different. Uh, or and so we want to talk about why do we gather the way we gather? Why do we serve, give, do the things that we do? We want to highlight those every week to, to the point that you're like, yes, we know. I know. But if someone was here for the first time, they're like, oh, fascinating. That would be my hope. But we want to talk about that. And one, let me just start with this morning, why we gather. We gather um, not because... Uh, you, you think, well, we're supposed to Sunday, whatever the deal is with that. We gather regularly, yes, once a week in a, in a larger setting, but we gather because it is so important that we are a community, that we live in community, but we spend time learning, growing, praying, digging into the scriptures, having conversations, doing that as a community because what it does, especially in the United States of America, is it pulls out of us the individualism. The world does not revolve around me. So I need that as much as anyone. The world doesn't revolve around me and I need to be extracted from that mindset. And when I gather with other people, and when we connect with other people, I understand that you had a week this week, and you had a day, and you had this going on, and you have this going on, and we are pulled out, but then we also spend some time singing together, and we do that because sometimes we need to hear truth belted out in harmony and rhythm and with music. That is helpful for each and every one of us. And there are times that I can't sing because my heart is shattered, it's upside down, I'm exhausted and I can't sing, but you can sing for me. And so I listen to what you're singing, I hear you, I hear the band, and it pulls me out of where I am for a moment, or it has me experience the more, the bigger, for a moment. 
And so we sink into the scriptures and we do that because we are looking at truth that has been around for thousands of years, for forever, if you will, and we sink into how have people throughout history interacted with the divine? How have they experienced that in community? And we extract that, and we learn from that, and we listen to that, and we sink into that, and we ask what more is going on underneath that. And we do that together, because that's how it was always meant to be experienced. What we have in print and take home with us or have on our shelves at home and can read at any time, that's brand new. The scriptures were experienced in its time, in its day, orally in community. It was read out loud and it was interacted with in community. They weren't sitting in their home with their own copy. In the first century, at best, at best, there was one copy per community, village, city, whatever you want to call it. So they gathered because it's the only way they're going to hear it. Other than, guess what, memorizing it and being able to say it together. So that's a bit of why we gather. Why? A small bit uh, of why we gather and do some of the things we do. But we want to continue to talk about that. And we'll get into why do we give? Why do we do some of these things? Great. Every Sunday, just plan on us constantly talking about that. Um, it'll be great. Uh, and then with that... Uh, I myself did have a week. On Wednesday morning, uh, or Wednesday at some point, I think it was morning we left, uh, Josh Burgess and I went to Puerto Rico, and then he got back Friday afternoon, and I got back uh, technically Saturday morning. Uh, so I know it's Sunday because I'm here. <laughs> and right now, adrenaline and a little uh, holding hands with caffeine is, has me. Otherwise, I'm a bit of an emotional basket case and I'm tired. Josh is a gift because he pushes and, uh, and uh, nudges and drags the best out of me, and he got me there, and we spent um, a day in many ways with Jonathan and Christina Ocasio and did some beautiful things with them, and then I got to spend another day with them while Josh was flying, uh, and, um, and it was such a gift. We have friends and partners in Puerto Rico um, that we love to spend time with, and what they are doing is absolutely stunning within the kingdom of God, and it's very inspirational and challenging and, and drags us along, and so to be able to hold hands with them and do stuff is really, really, really beautiful, and um, that began because Josh, the builder, built a relationship with them. So, in, and that's... Uh, Give, given us an opportunity to do so more. And we will talk about them a lot and continue to uh, create ways for you all to experience Puerto Rico as well and Matazul, the church, and what they're doing. They started their fourth campus, they call it last Sunday, a week from today. And Jonathan said, it's their fourth, and he's like, you know how when you have more kids, he's like, this one came out walking. <laughs> he said, it's, it was easy. And he, and he said that, and he said, but listen to this. They were in that community, they were in that city for five years, being the church, building relationships before they then last Sunday started a gathering. And that was like a, oh, and now here we all are. Five years, though, of being together, serving, giving, pouring out, cultivating relationships. So there's things like that, and you go, oh, what a gift. That's a, that's a learning in, in that. Um, so uh, I'm here now, 
and we're going to talk about heaven, hell, and judgment. That, I'm not sure how you, oh, like, oh boy. Um, now, here's the thing. I, I'm, I'm going to start uh, with a, a, a preface to say this for me, um, I think I told Josh this in about a five-minute conversation. Like, oh yeah, we're going to talk about this. And but, that, 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 that. Uh, I, uh, written about this, spent an, uh, many of years in this in, in many ways, and so um, uh, I can put it together and I can go, and for me, and I'll be like, and there we go, how's everyone doing? Please, raise your hand, say, hope, slow down. That was a lot, or may, you don't even have to say it's a lot, but maybe something for you is like, uh, whoa, can you slow down, Wally? Can you pause, wait a minute, can, real quick clarification. I'm okay with that. I really am, especially in this. I don't want to just get done and then have all of us collect our heads, rolling around on the floor and try and make some semblance of uh, sense of it as we leave. Uh, certainly, it can be heavy, it could be huge. I don't doubt that, but I still want us together as best we can. So if you have a question, thought, um, in some ways, but certainly if it's a slowdown, pal, uh, please do that. Uh, that would be wonderful. Um, I'd like to take a deep breath. Yes. Do I have a toast? I was going to, but the toasty is not here. Please. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Um, beautiful. Uh, if we may, a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll sink in. Gracious God, I bless you for right here, right now. You are with us. It's a gift. God, I don't want to sprint by this moment, uh, but I want to uh, have all of us in heart, mind, and soul, in every way, um, physically, just be here with you, and may our hearts be open to what you have for us, um, even now. And so I bless you, God, for the gift of being able to gather together as your body, the church, uh, the gift of being able to express our love, our gratitude, our worship, our questions through song and prayers and conversation and all of it, and then uh, opening the scriptures. And so we want to hear from you now. That is our hope, our prayer. And so may the posture and meditation of my heart in the words of my mouth um, bring honor and glory to you. So God, I, I pray even now that you would speak then through me. That the frazzle emotions you can just level, bring peace so that we will stay focused. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Amen. Um, we are in the third week of a sub-series. Uh, we have been walking through the Gospel of Matthew for over a year now, a little over a year, and um, it's been a gift, but within that there are different themes, and so this one that we've been in we are calling Light at the End of the Tunnel, and it's specifically because the content of the scriptures at this point uh, is, it feels a bit dark and heavy. I would argue a lot of that heaviness and darkness, though, is more of what modern religious people, what we have read into the text, more so than what's actually there, but the reality it is heavy. There is some of that, and especially we're going to talk about the word judgment. That word can hit like a thud, a big boulder in ways, and again, I think very much in part is because of what we bring into it, think into it, than what is actually there, but... It, it is there. So uh, we'll take a peek at the little intro video for funsies, and then we are going to sink in. Maybe you have said or heard but uh, the statement, do not judge me, right? Pretty common. Maybe somebody has said that to you. Maybe you've said that, do not judge me. Um, and the, or who, who gave you the right to judge me? That's maybe it. Uh, which tends to, here's the thing, in saying that, even hearing that, that's already framing the idea of judgment as solely negative. We're already off to something. So people respond, another thing I heard, why can't we just all love? Why can't we just all love? But what that has done right there is that already is pitting judgment versus love. That their enemies are their opposites in some ways. And that leads to all sorts of chaos. So before we attempt, or I attempt to untie that knot a little bit, I want to do a brief summary of where we were last week, because that flows, the text anyways, flows into this week. Uh, all throughout Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which is where we've been, Jesus is drawing from the Hebrew prophet Daniel, the book of Daniel. And this essentially offers a glimpse of how the Son of Man is the language that Daniel uses and then gets used in the New Testament, the Son of Man will be vindicated, overcoming the selfish kingdoms of the world that have been oppressively ruling. At some point, the Son of Man will rise up and overcome these. It's giving, Daniel gives a vision of a day when the Son of Man will rise up and be enthroned as the king of forever, the king of the world. And by going into and through death and resurrecting on the other side to a new life, this king will inaugurate a new creation. That's what's happening here. But this new creation, and really important for us, is not about escape to somewhere else. The scriptures speak of heaven and earth being healed and made one 
as it was in the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, heaven and earth are one. They're together. It's, it's united. So then, when it's about being healed and put back together, it's not about hiding until some glad morning when we'll fly away because the earth is not our home. No, 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 no. Rather, when the only home we've ever known has been fully restored and renewed, which is actually a language when you hear new heaven and new earth, the word is kainos in the Greek, and it means renewed. It's qualitative, not quantitative. Are you with me? Not another one, a new renewed one. It's taking and cleaning up the trash. So, um, when that happens, we will participate with the divine in the forever banquet of shalom, wholeness, peace. That's what's going on. So a quick mental picture, if I can give that. In the beginning, heaven and earth are one. We see that. If you mental picture, you go, it's oneness. But in Genesis 3, our first book of the Bible, in Genesis 3, we, we see a breaking. We read a breaking of shalom, which is known as sin. That's what we understand as sin, and we hear that, and that's important. So now, mental picture, there is heaven and earth and sin. Sin has disrupted, interrupted, broken, corrupted, infected, however you want to look at the, the oneness, and it's splintered, it's taken apart. So now there's heaven and earth and sin in there, infecting and disrupting and corrupting things. Are you with me? Why I say that is because um, you don't have, in the beginning, and you don't have heaven and hell. If you look into any of your Bible apps and put in heaven and hell together, you will find, you know what you will get? Nothing. Zero. Heaven and hell are not spoken of together in the scriptures in that way. There's heaven and earth and sin, which smashes it, crushes it, disrupts it. Are you with me? Already like, oh, yeah, I know. And it'll make way more sense as we get into the context. That's really important. Uh, I'd argue that heaven isn't a place we have never been. It's a, it begins with the divine spark deepest within that has always been. So heaven is the ache within us wooing the rest of our being to awaken and unite with our creator, the one who is eternal wholeness. Then it's a taste. It's simply something we know will be, but we're just getting a hint of it, a sliver, like, yes, all of that. This leads to living our lives the way Jesus would live our lives. And when people ask then, when we live into this, why do you live as you do? The, re simple, the simple response that I would suggest is, because I am in love. I am in love, being held by love, which produces a joy that leads to living this love in all that I do. Are you with me? Now, because we know there is a massive interference called sin, there has been a disruption, a corruption of God's created order, which we call sin. That's the main word. And that takes us into our text this morning. 
which is a picture of divine justice. And that's key wording there too. So I'm trusting that this time will be helpful and hope-filled. And um, so again, please slow me down. You can, we can hold on. That's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Um, at some point, i got to go. It's my son Eli's birthday. We would like to celebrate that. He's sick today, though. How much of a bummer. He can't be sick on your birthday, but he is. Uh, so anyways, if you're watching, <laughs> love that guy, 12 years old. Join me in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with verse 31. Uh, we'll have some stuff on the screen. We'll have at it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, uh, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separated the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and he will put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are what? Blessed, hang on to that, key word, blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then these sheep will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Oh, now we're going to get there, but hold on there. Um, you, you have this thing of saying, well done, and they go, well done, thanks for taking care of me, if you will, and, and their response is, uh, we don't remember seeing that, that need. Now, the language, when I say blessed, keyword blessed by my father, isn't, isn't blessed as in God randomly selected people to bless kind of thing. It's those who have received and lived, who receive and live into the Father's love, which takes us back to Matthew 5, what is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's where that language comes from. Blessed, you're blessed, you've lived into this. The Sermon on the Mount begins what we often call with the Beatitudes, which means what? Blessing. It's just that, the blessings if you will. It begins there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but that word righteousness means justice and righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those Blessed are those with a pure heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because they follow the way of Jesus, because of me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessing is living into these ways. So it's this. It is these lives of the sheep, they that are being discussed here, they embody these blessings that Jesus proclaimed. 
They embody that. The blessed are those who live from a place of humble gratitude because they've been met in their poorness in spirit, in their mourning. They've been met as they are, right where they are, and they've been met by the divine, and they're like, oh, thank you for holding me, helping me, blessing me, loving me. And from this place, then, I will then do the same for every person I meet. That's the movement of the blessings. I was met, and because of that, I humbly, gratitude, do the same for others. So they, in turn, act humbly and with love and mercy when they encounter the king in need. But wait, they say we don't recall seeing the king in need, correct? To which the king responds, now we can get to this, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Oh... We didn't see you, but they go, no, but you did that for others. And he is saying, that's me. Brilliant, 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 because it speaks of the stunning truth that every single person is created in the image of the divine, that spark is within everyone. And when you acknowledge that, when you see the divine spark in every person, well, you're seeing the divine. You're encountering and interacting with. Are you with me? Great. Now then, let's continue. Then he will say to those on his, on his left, the goats, depart from me, already pause. That word depart in Greek is pereo. Pereo means so we know. Because here's already, if you have a picture of mm, angry God, depart from me, grabbing and throwing someone away from me. Nope. The word depart means to continue on one's chosen journey. You are free to keep walking in the direction that you chose to be walking. It is heartbreakingly away from me, and I don't like that, but to depart from life is what pereo means. To depart from life, to depart from the way of Jesus. You have chosen to walk that way. You may continue, to continue going that way. Depart from me is you can keep going. I won't stop you. It breaks my heart, but you may keep going. Are you with me? You who are cursed, so depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil. The devil is, uh, means one who accuses falsely and his angels. Oh, well, now we got some things where you're like, oh, I know that language. For I was hungry. Uh, is that next slide? Yep. For, nope. Oh, it's already on there. Sorry. Thank you. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. These are basic questions of life. Food, water, clothes, and care, right? Questions I have already in this. When people argue these issues... Clothes, food, care, water, as political, is it because Christians have abdicated their foundational calling? When we argue politically about food, water, clothes, and care, is it because we are sick spiritually? It's questions I have. Goats, 
How do you respond to such a thing? Now, next slide. They will also answer the goats, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away, apercomai is the word there, to go one's chosen way. To eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You again will go the way in which you have chosen to walk and go. Are you with me? Not angry throwing, not angry, I'll get you. Uh, yep, you want to walk that way? You can keep on walking. And it breaks God's heart. But love is choice. So, in many ways, it's pretty clear, correct? When seeing someone in need, please see the image of the divine in each person. Then act accordingly. The ache to see humanity and creation made whole is the divine sparking within us. To act in love for all people is to love and serve the divine. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you choose to ignore or dismiss the one before you, you ignore or neglect the divine. The right acting sheep participate in eternal life. And the neglectful go away, keep walking into eternal punishment. Now there's a lot here. We could dig in more and more with the words, but I want to stick with two things. The first is that many read this story and assume it pertains to heaven and hell. But neither of those words are actually found here. But the idea, as we just showed, of walking with God or walking away from God is here. Secondly, many read an idea of hell into this. What this picture is actually about will be the second thing we address, which will hopefully clear things up a bit. But because we never properly address the instances in the book of Matthew when, he, when Jesus used the word hell, I want to start there. Because we've, we've seen him use it throughout Matthew and we never sunk in. Some people went, hey, are we going to talk about this hell thing? And we said, yes, but let's wait until we have all of this context and then we'll sink in. Are you good with that? So let's do that because that'll help us get to what this is, is about, actually. In the Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, we only get the one Hebrew word sheol, which used to be, and I will say that, translated as hell. You actually have now the updated, a lot of the translations that are newer, call it the pit or the grave or the depths because that's a more accurate translation. That's what it meant, now ready? It's the realm of the dead, not where some go, where everyone goes. In the Hebrew scriptures it speaks of the pit or the place of the dead where everyone goes at some point. But what you will read often is, please don't let me stay there. Please don't let me languish there. That's some of the poetry and in that. But Sheol is essentially the realm of the dead. That's what it means. Now in the New Testament, there are three words that we interpret in English into hell. The first word, Greek word, is Hades or Hades. However you want to pronounce that. I don't know. Hades, though... And now, so we're ready. 
Hades is the, un, the god of the underworld in Greek mythology. And contextually, in certainly you think first century when they were doing gladiator games and all of these uh, different games, when there would be death, guess what would happen? Say you see this arena, you see a coliseum and there are gladiator games and people are killed. Then at one point, what will come out is a person will come out with a mask on, the mask of Hades, and he will clean death out. He sweeps away death to the realm of the dead. That's what Hades does. So when they use the word Hades, it's the, it's the underworld. It's the land of the dead. It's the one who sweeps away the dead. Helpful? I think. The second Greek word is the word Tartarus, and it's only found once in the New Testament, Peter's second letter. It's another Greek word in, for the realm of the dead within Greek mythology, and judgment for angels, and we have that. We'll, we'll put that up. Um, the text, I believe, anyway, Second Peter, am I right? Yes. 2, 4, 9, and 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Oh, we're getting some language that maybe spark us, right? If this is so, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous. Why? For punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Real quick, that word follow, where it says that last sentence, who follow, pereo, there it is again, those who continue on the path that they were on, oh, because of the, the sinful nature, they've chose to live into that and just spend time in that, and to live from that, you can keep right on going. They've dis despised any kind of authority and goodness and all of that. Are you with me? I think that's helpful. So, um, the third word in the Greek is Gehenna. It's found 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of the 12 times Jesus speaks it. And the 12th, the one other time, is in the book of James. Now, Gehenna is translated from the Hebrew words Ben-Hinam. Ben-Hinam, which actually is a place. It translates the Valley of Hinnom. It's a place where is that place? It's here, along the southwest side of Jerusalem. Uh, next slide should be a map, picture. Here it is. I circled it. This is the valley of Hinnom next to, on the southwest side of Jerusalem. It's a valley. You can go there today. We didn't have time on our trip in May. We talked about it. Sorry, Terry, Sue, Dave. We're here like Doug and Lori. Guess what we were going to do? Um, I kid you not, and I know Tim and Jeremy are really planning for this next trip. We were going to pack um, basket lunches because the Valley of Hinnom today is a park. It's gorgeous. It's a park now, and we were going to go have lunch in uh, the Valley of Hinnom. So when we leave, we could say, you just had um, lunch in hell. So um, we had uh, our basket, like, you know, the basket in hell, like, that whole, but we didn't. Anyways, uh, but that's the thing. So real place, are you ready? It's a real place. Um, Valley of Hinnom, 
it's here now then. During the time of the Hebrew scriptures, this valley is where people set up worship of the pagan Canaanite god Molech. This eventually, all of these sacrifices that they would make, eventually led to, which in the ancient world, I know it's bonkers, led to them going, okay, we're, we're, we're sacrificing, doing offerings of things of value, trying to get the gods on our side, specifically Molech, and they kept ramping it up to where they started to sacrifice their kids on the altar to Molech, trying to get Molech to be on our side and to be with this or whatever. So they did sacrifice their kids in the Valley of Hinnom, specifically in a place called Topheth. So next slide, it should be, yeah, Topheth is actually here, and we're going to need this in a moment. Here's the dung gate coming out. We'll need that in a minute. But Topheth is here. There in Topheth, there was an altar to the god Molech, and it's where they sacrificed kids in fire to the god Molech in the Valley of Hinnom. So I know that seems crazy, but the Hebrew scriptures then provide a number of places that speak of don't go this way. Don't worship Molech. Don't do offerings to them. The first place is in the Torah in Leviticus 18.21. Next slide. You shall not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name, the reputation of your God. I am Yahweh. I am God. Don't do that. Now, I say this, if you have to write something down so that it can be repeated and remembered, it's probably an issue, correct? It's written. We have it. This was clearly an issue for them. Please don't go that way because many of you are going that way. Are you with me? Now, later we find a king of Israel, Ahaz, he loses the plot and he presents offerings to Molech, we find in 2 Kings 16, 12 uh, to 13. Uh, we have that when the king came back, that's Ahaz, from Damascus and saw the altar in Topheth. He approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offering and grain offering, poured out his drink offering and splashed blood of his fellowship offering, that's an animal sacrifice, against the altar. That was supposed to be done, if you will, for Yahweh. They did these things. Now it's being done to Molech. What are you doing, Ahaz? Then, eventually, that spiraled into King Manasseh of Judah sacrificing his children, 2 Chronicles 33. So it's another version of the story. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, in hell, is how we in English translate that, the valley of Hinnom, they sacrificed their kids. Are you with me? Finally, King Josiah comes along and turns, like, we've got to get this thing right. We've got to get back to our creator God. And he's like, get out of this chaos. And he brings Israel back to the creator God. And he destroys this place of sacrifice. 2 Kings 23.10, he, that is uh, Josiah, desecrated Topheth. We've got to knock this thing down, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. So no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. So by the time of Jesus, 
This place was known as a detestable place. Plus, get ready, in the first century, the Jews would take the carcasses from all of their animal sacrifices, so they go to the temple in Jerusalem and they do animal sacrifices on the altar, but that was all the inside of the animals. That's all you sacrifice. So you would take the carcasses, and guess what they did? They went down to the dung gate, which I showed. They walked it out there and went tossed it into the valley of Hinnom, along with trash. It became eventually the city kind of trash dump. Sorry, Coopersville. But that idea, like we'll put all of our trash there, we'll take animal carcasses and throw them there. And what do you see when you drive by Coopersville? You see all kinds of birds flying overhead, right? Well, guess what you found in first century Israel? You had wild dogs that would fight over the animal carcasses. And then they would, because of all that refuge, sometimes it just burst into flames, but also times they would light it on fire to burn it. So then the Valley of Hinnom became known as the place where the fire never goes out and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping for the children that was sacrificed there, gnashing of teeth of the dogs that are fighting over the carcasses. Are you with me? So that's how it was spoken about. That was the language you used. That is what Jesus used many times then. When you live a certain way, you are basically tossing your life into the valley of Hinnom. Now then, um, we're doing, doing okay? It's a lot, huh? Maybe you're like, yeah, I know this, maybe not. Welcome to the first century idea of hell. We see Jesus time and again warning the religious leaders first and the religious people, by the way, all the times that Jesus uses the word hell, he's not threatening pagan people. He's actually not threatening people who don't know. He's talking to the religious leaders saying, hey, hey, there is a way in which we were um, brought to live by our creator. You, you're trying to lead, the, you're supposed to be leading the people in worship of God and you're living in such a way as to throw yourself into the valley of Hinnom. That's who he warns. Not by the way the people who we think are terrible, awful people. He doesn't say to them, threat, threat, threat. They're already there. By the way they're living, so better meet them there and hopefully wake them up. So anyways, uh, so we studied earlier in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He offered this movement, 5, 21 to 22 in Matthew. This will give us an idea. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is like basically calling them a bad name. It's just putting them down. It's demeaning people. You are answerable to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. You're going before the courts then. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, hell. You want to treat people that way? You want to live that way? You're in danger of walking right out of the dung gate and into the fire. Are you with me? You're already heading in that way. And it's a warning. But, so we get this. He then will move from here, and he's going to warn after this of infidelity in marriage. He speaks of showing self-control, not letting lust lead to adultery. 
if you go that way, if you don't get that under control, if you don't pay attention to it and it walks that way, you have thrown your body into Gehenna. Jesus gives a picture of a real place his audience knew vividly. It was an image, a metaphor for a life misused, misapplied, a life that is being wasted. Are you tracking? To paraphrase, though, that little section of Matthew that would move from don't murder, pay attention to anger, uh, don't commit adultery, pay attention to the lust in your heart, it would be this, you all see adultery and human trafficking as hell. Yeah, around 25 million humans are reported as being trafficked globally. Today, 25 million. Michigan is, the top, is in the top 10 in the United States where human trafficking takes place. But what Jesus says is, I need you to pay attention to the root you are staring at the branches and going, human trafficking is hell. It is. So he says, pay attention to the root, which is lust in your heart. And you don't pay attention to that, and it will spiral. So we think of people who are in human trafficking, they're terrible. And Jesus says, actually, they're created in the image of the God. They went that way because they didn't pay attention. They, whatever, and ran into that chaos. You're just as likely to have that happen if you don't pay attention to that within you. So are you thinking, oh, it's only a website. It's only a thing. Oh, no, there's, you're participating in human trafficking. There's way more going on, and it's a little thing in a heart that explodes and grows, and it's terrible. So he's trying to give you a warning. Pay attention to the root. Also, you see mass murders and school shootings as hell. They are. There have been 589 mass shootings over the past 314 days in our country. Will you see the root of a culture drowning in anger that's outfitted with weapons like bubblegum? He says, pay attention to the anger in your heart. If you don't deal with it, if you ignore it, it can spiral into this really easily. And then you throw yourself, and now you drag many others into Gehenna. In many ways, we are mirroring the ancient world. We're right outside. Now, here's the thing. Where is the Valley of Hinnom? Where was the altar at Topheth? right outside the city gates, right? Right outside the temple walls, the people choose to offer sacrifices to pagan gods of lust and anger and greed and selfishness. And I'd argue that part of the reason we've missed it is because we have framed hell as merely after death, when Jesus frames it as right here in front of you. We have pictures and images and understandings formed by novels and pop culture mixed with some Greek mythology. The likes of Dante's Inferno and Milton's Paradise. This is, go back one please, this is from Dante's Inferno. This is what gave us these pictures, this novel. Dante's Inferno gave us this picture, John Milton's Paradise, next slide, that book gave us this idea, these images that we tend to think of when we think of hell. First century, they know a valley, they know trash, and they know 
dogs fighting over animal carcasses. They go, that thing's real. It's right in front of us. We've made it after death, really esoteric, weird stuff. Pop culture mixed with Greek mythology then gave us this last one. Like, then, then we get this. It's a bit of Greek mythology because you could argue, like we're close here, there's the goat god Pan. We've talked about before. We don't get into it. And now we've just had some things. Let's give them a trident. At some point, maybe we'll do a red suit with pointy ears and stuff because you're just trying to get it. That's all stuff we've made up, though. But a lot of times, that's our image. And again, when is it? After death. So then, we tend to spin on that idea of hell. Jesus simply spoke of a life lived off course, hidden deep in the heart, and then tossing that life by going with it into the garbage dump where the fires burn and wild dogs fight over animal carcasses. Which takes us back to the story about sheep and goats. About God as judge, which is in that story, providing a final judgment. Now that will be important. So, and that means we need to sink into what some of these key concepts and words meant within the context of the people living within the scriptures so we can be people who are formed by the spirit underneath the scriptures. Let's begin. So there, there, there's some idea of hell. You probably have lots of questions, maybe. And, you, and one of them being, well, yeah, I know, but what after death? What we get in scripture is, you want to go that way, you can keep going that way. What does that look like? We don't know. No one has gone and come back and said, oh, here's what it looks like. No. Pictures, images. But if you want to go that way, you can go that way. And what we need to get at then is this word judgment. So, to get at the word judge and judgment, this is really important uh, as we go. So, let's begin here. Isaiah 33, 22, I think, right? For the Lord, Yahweh, the one creator, is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will what? This is really important because the word for judge, is the Hebrew word shofet. Go ahead and say shofet. Now, here's the thing. In this specific text, it helps us. The Hebraic understanding of judge is one that encompasses heroes and defenders. A judge isn't, a judge is, I'm going to rescue the people who have been living this way. In order to rescue you, we have to make a judgment on those that are creating the chaos and taking things and smashing it all to pieces, disrupting the shalom. We have to make judgments on that. And so the word shofet, this word, the word, not shofet, sorry, the word for judgment Ready? Is used synonymously in the scriptures with the word salvation. Same. Judgment, salvation. Is that how we think of it? That's how the Hebrew people understood it. To judge is to save. Psalm 76, 8 and 9 says this. From heaven you announced what their sentence would be. The earth was afraid and silent when God arose to execute judgment and to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. That's what judgment will do. It will save the oppressed. You, you see how important this is. Now, that word judgment is the Hebrew word mishpat. Go ahead and say mishpat. It's the, the, oh, let's try again. Mishpat. Which is the 
also the word, ready, and this is why I say it, it's also the Hebrew word for justice. Judgment and justice are the same, which is true for us, right? Oh, not so much, Wally. Right, I know. So that's why it's important. And that is a huge deal in helping us understand how the Bible depicts judgment and justice, how they experienced it. Throughout the scriptures, divine judgment is tied to justice with the intention being for saving to move toward the restoration of shalom, wholeness, to put it back together. Judgment is not for being vindictive or getting vengeance as in, I'll get you naughty kids because look how big and bad I am. Nope. We've done that. That is a cartoon of the divine. It is nonsense. Divine justice is about restoring shalom. God's decision-making, God's judging, is about putting all things back together. Are you with me? But because we generally have a very dysfunctional understanding of both judgment and justice, it often leads to a dysfunctional view of the divine. Those who say, I can't do the God thing, it's too judgmental. We should just love everyone. We should, which includes judgment. But with a very specific goal in mind of shalom being put back together, like we're getting back to shalom. I think we can all agree that some things cannot go on in God's renewed world, correct? Could we all agree on that? So I know some of us go, wow, we shouldn't judge. I would argue that every one of us goes, yes, we should. In this way, that can't go on. That's a problem. Look what's happening. That has to stop. Wait. Welcome to judgment. You actually crave judgment. So do I. Because we need wholeness and shalom, so that can't go on. So then, in a very abbreviated form, I want to walk out the three different definitions and uses of the word for judging in the New Testament. I know this is a lot. The word for judge in the New Testament is the word krino. Go ahead and say krino. Krino. But it has three very distinct uses. One is to make a decision. To, to pronounce an opinion concerning right or wrong. It's basic decision-making. Ready? I have crino to have cheese on my burger. I have made the decision to have cheese on my burger. That's one of the ways in which judging is used. I'm making a decision, a basic decision. Secondly, the second use is to summon one, summon one to trial, so in order that uh, judgment may be passed on them, so it's a court system. There is judging within a court system. So, Crino operates in the court system. Thirdly, to determine someone's essence. I'm going to make a judgment on your essence. Oh, that's the third use of Crino. So there is basic decision-making, legal court system, determining the essence of a person. The first two we are involved in. The third is the divine's job alone. Now when you say, don't judge me, what is it that you're saying? Don't tell me who I am. You can't make a, you can't determine who I am. That's what you are saying. Yes, in that, we're correct. Uh, that's God's job. So you keep saying, I'm this thing. Please stop, not your job, God's. 
But if someone says that, that choice, that is trash, garbage, bad, dumb, stupid, that choice. Oh, you're making a decision on that's chaos. Oh, I actually can do that. But you're not dumb, stupid, blah, blah, blah. That's telling you your essence is something. Those are different things. Are you with me? Now then, according to scholar Craig Blomberg, the most misinterpreted New Testament verse is this, Matthew 7, 1 to 2. Uh, next slide. Do not judge, crino, or you too will be crinoed. For in the same way you crino others, you will be crinoed. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. This is not about making basic decisions. This is not about the court system. Jesus is speaking about essence. Please don't go around determining people's essence. That'll be come back on you. Are you with me? Then, similarly, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says this, and this is so helpful. Therefore, crino nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. Oh, that little thing in your heart that Jesus said, please pay attention to. And will expose the motives of the heart. That's jo God's job. Hey, I see that essence. I understand. That's what I'm warning you about because it'll take you all the way. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Some might be a little. Some might be a lot. Are you with me? Essence is the divine's job, so let's leave it for the divine to do. We're not very good at it. Please give the divine's job back. How about a couple examples of divine ju judgment and justice then? Judgment is given on an abusive husband. Oh, we got to make judgment on that. And so the, the abusive husband goes to jail. Simultaneously, the wife is saved. Are you with me? The husband, now here's the thing. Please hear this. In the divine economy, the husband is not sent away to rot, a.k.a. also known as punitive justice. In the divine economy, the goal is restoration. So, restorative justice. The goal is to find the divine spark within that that has gone dormant and bankrupt and empty within him. Please see if we can find that, dust it off, get that person to wake up, that guy. So there is significant interior work to be done in order for that which is to broken to be healed and made whole. Are you with me? But we have a system that just says, there you go, good luck. And by that we mean rot. And we need to do work of saying, could we work on restorative justice? I have a friend in Muskegon who's been doing that for some time now. Uh, racism cannot go on in the divine's renewed world. People are invited to awaken to the divine spark in each and every single human being. If they refuse to honor the divine's creation, then that will be judged. Once again, the goal is restoration, but love cannot be forced, so the person is free to decide. The hope is that all will come to the saving knowledge of the divine, found in scripture, as one of the first Christians, a guy named Paul, writes so beautifully in a letter to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, next slide, please. I urge, Paul writing to them, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful, shalom, and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, because God's heart is that all people will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
That's God's heart. That's God's desire. It should be ours as followers of Jesus to desire that all people would return, come back to, find, awaken to God. Will that happen? That's the hope. That would be the desire. But as we've seen, people can go their own way. And they will. God desires for all people to awaken and return, but because God is love, love cannot manipulate or force, so people can say no and reject love, and guess what? They do all the time because you and I see it every single day, correct? We see it, the chaos of that rejection is all around us, and it's what is known as the sinful nature within us. We can choose that over choosing divine love. On the cross, Jesus made a final judgment on all sin, past, present, and future. And through resurrection, Jesus announces that all people are invited to receive the complete forgiveness of the divine and to live into the renewed life, the renewed world. And it's for us to accept, receive, absorb, and live from a place of this forgiveness that restores, renews, and enlivens this newness within us. Or we can say, no thanks, I'll go my own way. Are you with me? So we should be relentless in dusting our hearts for any fingerprints of any selfish, malicious, or chaotic intent. That we would seek lives of restoration, renewal, and reconciliation. This is the hope, the work, and the way of Jesus the Christ. And in all of this, we leave room for the divine to shape or reshape our hearts, as well as shaping and reshaping the hearts of others. Because it's the divine's desire for all to turn toward and return to their divine, our divine creator. So judgment is for saving. And saving comes through decision-making rooted in love. We have our role in this, and we leave plenty of room for the divine's role. So the dualistic question of, is God judge or savior, misses the depth of the divine, because the answer is yes. Do you see how that's knit together in the scriptures? How they understood it? And if we see it other, like, uh-uh, it's because that is what, what has happened around us, our culture, all blah, 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 whatever. We've gone this with it. We'll say that's enough. Um, hopefully that gives us a, a, a better picture of how judgment, justice, hopefully you're there. You may have, and I, I would imagine I do, thousands of questions. Sure, 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 sure. Of course, this is to start the conversation. But hopefully we'll also see it in context and to begin to think anew about it because of that as well. Um, I'll pray. Uh, have questions, send them, write them down, all that stuff. Yep, fine, great, we'll do that. Um, and we'll continue to talk about this, but to start. Um, pray, uh, I'd love for us to reflect a little bit, and then um, we'll go. Oh, gracious God, you are good, you are good, you are good, you are good, you are good. And we have to say it again and again and again. God, you are good. 
God, you are judge. God, I bless you that you love each and every one of us. Not because of what we do, but because who we are, whose we are, that we are yours. But God, I bless you that we have the choice. We're here, we're humans, and we have choice. And you invite us to embrace you, to be with you, to walk with you, to follow your ways, to walk in love, to live in love, to live out love. Oh, God, I bless you for that. That you forgive the sin so that we can walk with you. May we choose to walk in that forgiveness then, God. And God, even now, I, I pray for, um, God, I pray for those who, who keep saying no to you. God, the people in our lives, they're here. We have family and friends. So many people here have family and friends. And their choices, the way in which they walk away from you all the time, all whatever it may be, is shattering hearts in this room right now. And God, I pray that you hold these people close, that this would sink into their heart, and that we would pray for a waking up an awakening, a coming back to you, a returning to you. And then may we live lives that at least model that, show that, invite that to be the case. Even if that means from a distance, certainly with boundaries, all of that. Yes, God, but that is our hope. Help us hold that hope. Reshape our hearts so that it is shaped by that hope of return, of restoration, of renewal. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving me. God, even me, God. Thank you. I bless you uh, that we can um, have this time with you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.